This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for July 22nd, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. This week, investigative journalist Charles Piller is here. We talk about signs of fabrication in scores of Alzheimer's articles, threatening discoveries that are key to a reigning theory of the disease. After that, researcher Wan Ying Kang talks with me about Saturn's bizarre moon Enceladus. Her group modeled the salinity of the ocean that lies between the moon's icy shell and solid core. Figuring out how much salt is in the global ocean is important to understanding the habitability of this moon. Now we have Charles Piller. He writes investigative stories for science. We're going to talk about the whistleblower that is battling problems in Alzheimer's research on multiple fronts. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Sarah. Nice to be with you. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. This is a story you have been working on for quite a while now. So the whistleblower at the center of your story is a scientist. He is. He is indeed. So how did he get involved in blowing the whistle on some kinds of Alzheimer's research that's been done in industry and also in the primary literature, you know, as part of basic research. Yeah. So Matthew Schrag is his name, and he's a neuroscientist and physician at Vanderbilt University. He got into it in part because he he was willing to be outspoken about concerns about the FDA-approved Alzheimer's drug, Adjuhelm, and the concerns about its efficacy. Following that, he was approached by a colleague of his who was friendly with some scientists who were deeply concerned about a drug that is currently in clinical trials for Alzheimer's, semufilin, a drug that is produced by a company called Cassava Sciences. There are a number of short sellers. These are people who make bets that stocks will go down, and that's how they make their money raised concerns that this drug from Cassava Sciences is based on studies that are the subjects of some possible misconduct and possible image manipulation. So let's stop there. So this is somehow we've looped in the stock market and short sellers 
to what at first sounded kind of like problems in research. How are they connected? Yeah, it's complicated in that this issue burst onto the scene last summer, combination of short sellers trying to raise concerns about the stock price of this company, Cassava Sciences, associated with allegations of misconduct in studies that supported the development of this drug of theirs, Semufilum. The concern is that if this drug was based on research that was in some way fraudulent or if some kind of image manipulation occurred in the development of these studies, that it would suggest that the drug, which is, is in the currently in clinical trials, didn't warrant that level of approval from FDA. And so their goals were both to raise public concern about this and to alert the media and the public about it, and also to make sure FDA was aware of the possible misconduct associated with these studies before letting the company go forward. They wanted FDA to stop these trials, and they filed a petition. And this petition was filed by an attorney on behalf of some so-called short sellers. Just making sure I understand, some of the short sellers are actually also researchers. These short sellers in this case included some Alzheimer's experts who had deep concerns about the efficacy of this drug. They are buying certain kinds of securities that allow them to profit if the stock falls. So, you know, they had this extra motive, financial interest. So you have to take what they say with a grain of salt. So interesting. So part of what happened is that this whistleblower, Matthew Schrag at Vanderbilt, was contacted by a colleague of his who had connections with the short sellers. And Schrag is a guy who has the knowledge and skill to evaluate images for possible manipulation. What he did is he said, okay, I'll take a look at these. He was paid $18,000 by the attorney representing the short sellers to do this. So he looked at hundreds of images that are associated with this drug. And what he found was that over and over and over in dozens of papers written by the scientists behind the development of this drug and associated research that led up to its development, that in literally dozens of papers, there were strong signs of manipulated images. And when I say manipulated images, what I mean is that images that appeared to have been altered improperly to support certain hypotheses that the experiments were proposing. Let's describe these a little bit. It actually was a a range of different kinds of images, but I think the most vivid one and the most common concerns were raised associated with something called Western blots. These are a way of differentiating between different proteins in a sample. What Schrag did is he looked at these Western blots and he found that in many cases, if you look more closely at them by adjusting the contrast or enhancing the resolution above what was used in the printed paper in the journal, you could see more features and you could understand better the relationship between different portions of these blots. And the way the blots look is that they are kind of stacked bands, fuzzy stacked bands in an image. And what's very important is to see whether 
bands that refer to certain proteins were added or removed from the blots, or whether they were duplicated, basically cloned to be repeated. Copy and paste it around on the picture. Exactly right. And what Schrag found was that over and over and over in paper after paper, literally dozens of papers, that these images appeared to have been manipulated in various ways, a bunch of different ways, copy paste, sometimes cloned, sometimes the contrast would be changed in certain areas of the image so that certain features would come out and others would recede. This is not that complicated to do. So what does cassava sciences say about all these findings of image manipulation? Cassava sciences completely denies any wrongdoing. They do admit that some mistakes were made. And in fact, seven of the papers associated with Matthew Schrag's examination have been retracted following the concerns that he raised. So there is clear signs that what Cassava would call mistakes and others would call misconduct has occurred. And they are concerned that short sellers are intentionally trying to make a profit by running down the science behind their drug. This is obviously a matter of dispute. Taking this further now, as the whistleblower was looking into this research, he ended up finding possible image manipulation in papers about Alzheimer's disease, but from independent scientists, independent researchers that don't have anything to do with cassava sciences. It was, in a way, a kind of accidental discovery that proved to be, in many ways, much more important than the cassava story. So Schreg wanted to examine other kinds of research to see if his image analysis of cassava's work could be improved. And so he was knocking around a website called PubPeer, which is a place where scientific sleuths can post concerns they have about various kinds of academic papers, including possible image manipulation. In a search for Alzheimer's on that site, he found a study about research authored by a guy by the name of Sylvan Lesny, who's a scientist at the University of Minnesota. This research has to do with a set of proteins that is thought to be very important in Alzheimer's research called amyloid beta oligomers. So this is a type of protein associated with the very well-known amyloid proteins that are thought to form these plaques in the brain Amyloid plaques are considered to be a hallmark of the presence of Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of dispute about whether they're specifically the cause of Alzheimer's, and there have been many therapies that have been developed to try to remove or reduce plaques in the brain that have actually not had the improved cognitive effects that were sought by the researchers. So there's a lot of dispute about the meaningfulness of them and how they should be addressed, but everyone agrees that they're an important area of research. So what Schrag was finding in this paper on PubPeer was examination of this subset of these amyloid proteins called oligomers. And these soluble proteins called oligomers were featured in papers that were being examined on this site up here. Mm-hmm. People were flagging them and, and having questions about them. And it started out as an effort to just examine what other people were seeing about Western blots and other images in order to learn from it and to improve his own 
ability to analyze such images. And the more he looked, the more he realized that there was a pattern of complaints associated with this individual researcher, Sylvain Lesny, at the University of Minnesota. So he started to look up Lesny papers that were not cited as having potential problems on this PubPeer website. Just looked them up, started to look at the images, and lo and behold, he started to see image after image after image that appeared to have been improperly doctored. And we're now outside of the short seller funded research he was doing. He's now on his own looking at these images. Exactly right. Completely different set of images, completely different course of research, almost completely different researchers. Right. There was a little tiny bit of overlap between the research teams, primarily because they both used the same brain bank for some of their samples. So Schrag is looking at these images, and in the course of examining a variety of papers by this guy, Lesney, he runs across a paper that has been profoundly important in Alzheimer's research. It was in the journal Nature in 2006. By the early 2000s, there was a lot of skepticism about the amyloid hypothesis, which is this idea that these amyloid plaques cause Alzheimer's disease, because there had been so little success, basically no success, in finding a drug or other treatment that would either remove or reduce these plaques and then cause improvement in cognition for Alzheimer's patients. So because of that skepticism, there was more and more talk about whether the field needed to rethink this issue. So at the time, this particular type of amyloid protein called oligomers were beginning to be seen as a principal toxic component that was related to Alzheimer's. But no one had really ever figured out, well, which oligomer is the one that we should be concerned about? Because there are many depending on their molecular weight. So in 2006, there was a profound experiment that came out of the lab, a very important physician and neuroscientist by the name of Karen Ash at the University of Minnesota. And what came out of her lab was an experiment that showed that this particular amyloid oligomer that was dubbed A-beta star 56, and the 56 refers to its molecular weight, could be purified out of the brains of mice and then injected into rats. And then literally within hours, they showed signs of what could be called dementia, but certainly cognitive decline that would have been seen as mimicking the kinds of memory problems that Alzheimer's patients experience. And so suddenly for the first time, there was evidence that a particular toxic oligomer could cause cognitive decline in this very clear and direct way. This was profoundly influential. And since that time, it is still the fifth most cited experiment in basic research associated with Alzheimer's disease. Well, the reason we're talking about this paper is because it came across our whistleblower's desk when he was doing this search. Yes. He immediately realized that this was a very important paper and one that he would have to look at with great care. When he did so, he found several images within it, images that are fundamental to supporting the hypothesis in the experiment itself showed really strong signs of having been improperly doctored. 
and consequently called into question the validity of this paper that so many scientists think is fundamental to the story of understanding Alzheimer's disease. There's always a lot of hands in every research paper. How do you say who knew something or who didn't? I think it's important to put this into sort of an investigative context. So first of all, possible fraud is not the same as fraud. It requires a lot of careful work to review original images and to review original lab materials that a person like Schrag doesn't have evidence for. He doesn't have those original documents. And so what he always says is that there appears to be possible misconduct, that they should get a careful examination by institutional authorities. And those authorities will have access to all the raw data, all the raw images, all the uncropped Western blots that can show exactly what information was captured and how it might have been changed. So that said, the images that are available are very, very suggestive of possible doctoring. And consequently, those concerns, I think, are, are well supported, even if they require further review by institutional authorities. Now, who's responsible? Well, there's a couple ways to think about who's responsible. First of all, there's the person who, if indeed the images were inappropriately changed, there's the person who did that and can it be proven. One way to think about it is if you look at a wide range of work and there's one person who's the through line for that work, who's always in a responsible position associated with the evaluation of the lab data, then that person obviously becomes someone who you would imagine could be behind it. In this case, that person is Sylvain Lesny. Now, his mentor and this incredibly important and famous accomplished scientist, Karen Ash, was also involved in several of these papers, including this important paper in Nature in 2006. So you naturally would want to ask the question, is it possible that she knew about some of this or was involved in some of this if images were inappropriately changed? One answer to that question might be found in, are there other papers that someone like Ash, who was involved in the Lesney work, may have done independent of him that also had concerns raised about them? And in this case, the answer is no. That would certainly suggest that she may not have known anything about these image changes at the time they occurred, if indeed they were inappropriately done. And I think it's clear from the experts with whom I've spoken is that she certainly has some responsibility for not correctly certifying this information is correct, for not putting her expert eye carefully enough on information that she certified as being true and correct. And particularly in a paper so important to the field as this nature paper from 2006, for her to allow that to go through without giving it the degree of examination that would have made it, in essence, bulletproof from any criticism is surprising, if not shocking, to some of the experts with whom I've spoken. Matthew Schrag is not the only person that's looked at the images in question in this paper and in some of the others we've talked about and had some serious concerns about them. In the course of my investigation, I sent Schrag's findings, including dossiers on Lesney's work and on the cassava sciences studies to numerous experts in Alzheimer's disease. In addition, I sent it to two forensic image analysts who, as their work, 
examined these sorts of scientific images for possible alterations that should not have been present. And in all cases, by and large, people agreed with the findings by Schrag. Now, let me be clear that not everyone agrees on every image. Sometimes there's wobblers where some people would say, yes, this is an apparent sign of misconduct and others might disagree. But I would say that in many dozens of cases, everyone agreed that there were improper duplications, improper changes, cut and paste images, and other problems that Schrag identified. Basically, no one disagreed. Everyone was not just in agreement, but they were stunned by the degree of changes, by the number of changes, and by the apparently, in some cases, cavalier way in which the changes were made. In other words, some of these changes were pretty obvious, and you didn't have to look that hard to see them. So getting a little bit into the, the consequences, the fallout here, what did Shrag do with this information? Did he approach the journals and say, look what you published, this is problematic? Yeah, Shrag was methodical in how he approached this. He approached the journals in many cases, not every single case. He approached the journals and presented his findings to them. These are images with his analysis and descriptions of what he found. And he also sent the complete dossiers, approximately 60 or so pages of material for the Lesney group and approximately 100 pages of material for the Cassava group and explained to NIH that these studies, many of them were funded by the federal government, by NIH itself, and that it was their responsibility to take a look at them. And so the agency is looking at this, but they will not say the details of what they're doing or whether there will be any further investigation. All of that remains to be seen, and it would only be publicly disclosed if a finding of misconduct were made, which could be literally years in the future. Now, he also approached the journals. In the case of the cassava studies, and when I say the cassava studies, I mean studies by scientists who are linked to cassava sciences. I don't mean that the company itself per se conducted studies, although in many cases, the chief scientist of that company was involved in the research. So in the case of cassava sciences related papers, seven journal articles have been retracted and others are being reviewed. In the case of Lesney, two papers have recently been corrected. This occurred towards the end of my reporting process. In those cases, one was from the Journal of Neuroscience and one was from a journal called Brain. And in those cases, Lesney's group said that they had, quote, processed inappropriately, unquote, some of the images. Strangely, when Schrag looked closely at the corrected images, he found multiple examples of, again, apparent fabrication or manipulation of images that gave him pause and made him feel that even these corrections were a further example of efforts to obscure or to change elements of the experiment. I might add that the seminal paper in Nature was also the subject of some examination by its editors. Right after I contacted Nature for comment on the story, they published a editor's note saying that they were investigating that paper and that readers should exercise caution in interpreting its data. 
But overall, this process of evaluation can take a very long time, and it's not at all certain that any of these papers will eventually be retracted. This is an incredibly lengthy process. Journals can take months or even years before they complete their review and issue a retraction or decide not to do anything about it. NIH can take years. That's one of the reasons why Matthew Schrag decided to work with me in describing the extent and importance of these problems to a larger audience. It's because he feels deeply concerned that the scientific record for this important disease, Alzheimer, which affects millions of people, is in essence being polluted by wrong information. And it could be sending research into directions that it really shouldn't be going and wasting limited resources on studies that would be better altered in ways that could approach the problem differently. How do the people who are involved in this field that you talk to, you know, do they think that Alzheimer's research has been really driven off track and harmed in a big way by what's going on here? The experts with whom I spoke believe that it did, in fact, have a negative effect on the field, in particular, this 2006 Nature paper. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that nothing in that realm is scientifically important or useful. It remains to be seen how those experiments pan out in the future. But I think it's interesting that one of the leading advocates of that realm of Alzheimer's disease research, a guy by the name of Dennis Selko at Harvard, he and I spoke at length about these issues, and he was deeply concerned about the possible impact of this kind of potentially falsified work on the field. He also cautioned that people should remember that there's a lot of other incredibly important and good work that goes on in this realm and that those experiments are still pending. He did caution, however, that in the case of toxic oligomers, there's three clinical trials going on right now that he's got his eyes on. And he thinks that if those fail, then it really puts the wider amyloid hypothesis under some duress. Charlie, why isn't the scientific enterprise better at spotting these things, policing these things, preventing them from happening, or responding quickly? That's a very big question. We could do a whole podcast on it. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let me just lay out a couple of problems that the community faces. One is that there is a due process part of this. When accusations or concerns about possible misconduct occur, it's only fair to give the scientists involved ample opportunity to support the validity of their work. And this takes time. These are complicated issues. The second is that there's the embarrassment factor for institutions and for journals. There is a kind of inherent institutional reluctance to say, we made a mistake. We will let through a paper that was phony. Sometimes journals will take so long to evaluate something that to the outside set of eyes might seem relatively easy to resolve in a clear-cut case. So there's that. I wanted to make, though, one additional point that I think is of some importance in this. There is kind of a moral hazard for scientists and even for journalists about looking at this kind of possible misconduct in an era when science is under such attack. One might ask, well, maybe this, this incredible caution and 
reluctance to move quickly on possible misconduct is understandable. Well, I would just say that I think most scientists who are thinking clearly about this, and clearly journalists believe that the only way to support public trust in the scientific enterprise is to have scientists take a lead role in exposing possible misconduct in their ranks. And that is part of why people like Matthew Schrag have been involved in trying to get the record straight. He deeply fears that if the record is improper, if there are studies that have misdirected thinking or have caused a waste of precious resources, that the people who really suffer ultimately are the patients who are waiting for cures to this dread disease. Thank you so much, Charlie. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Happy to do it. Charles Piller is an investigative journalist based in California. You can read the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Wan Ying Kong about Enceladus, the watery, icy, cryovolcano-having moon of Saturn. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Saturn's icy moon, Enceladus, is thought to have a global ocean underneath a thick, icy shell. The Cassini spacecraft actually sampled from plumes of spray coming out of cryovolcanoes on the southern pole of this moon. The content of these plumes told us a bit about what's going on in the ocean of Enceladus, but there's a lot more that needs to be figured out. Wanyang Kang and colleagues wrote this week in Science Advances about modeling ocean circulation and saltiness on Enceladus. Hi, Wanyang. Hi. Enceladus has a ton going on. As we mentioned, it's got a global ocean. It has an icy shell that has some strange geometry, and it has a rocky core. This whole complicated little body is only 500 kilometers across. So can you kind of walk us through what's important for people to know about Enceladus going into this paper, going into this work? Yeah, of course, Sarah. So one thing that people find very interesting is that despite its small size, it's not completely frozen and still have a global subsurface ocean, which is really bizarre because this moon, 500 kilometers in diameter, is really like, like a droplet in the universe. And according to the thermodynamics, it will quickly cool down to a point that the, the entire water layer will be frozen. However, it's not. So one most important scientific question is why it's not freezing? Where is this heat come from? Another thing that is quite bizarre about this satellite is its ice shell geometry. In Sirius, ice shell is far from being uniform and homogenized. And this is really unexpected because all the external forcing guarantees that Sirius should be symmetric between the two hemispheres. 
So it's a surprise that the moon is not frozen right through, but it actually has this subsurface ocean. And the ice shell geometry, this ice shell that's laying over top of it, has an unusual shape. The part of the ice shell around the middle of the moon is thicker than the poles, and the poles are also not the same thickness as each other. The southern pole, where the geysers are, is much thinner. There's also the issue of habitability. Does having a liquid ocean really make Enceladus a good candidate, considering everything else that's going on here? In order to support life, liquid water is not the only condition you need. You also need nutrients. So we need some chemical that life can harvest. And Enceladus seems to have that based on the Cassini sampling over the geysers. The third necessary condition to support life is energy. And we don't exactly know the energetics of Enceladus. There could be hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean driven by tidal heating generated in the core. There also could be energy dissipated in the ice or in the ocean itself. Thus far, we don't have a very good estimation about which part of this planet is producing most of the heat. However, we do know that by absorbing this global surface ocean, there must be some heat source to keep the ocean from freezing. What was the question you were trying to answer in this work? So the question I try to answer in this work is trying to use the knowledge we have about ice geometry, what could be happening underneath, what could be happening in the ocean and in the silicate core. So we know that ocean ice form a coupled system and they affect each other. This connection between the ice shell geometry and what is happening in the ocean provides us a potential way to constrain the subsurface properties. So we know that ice shell geometry is odd. It's not uniform around the moon. There are differences between the equator and the poles, and also between the north and south poles. So you want to use that geometry to understand what's happening in the ocean and the core, basically ocean circulation and heat transport. But we also we can't leave out salinity. This relationship between the ice shell, the core, and the ocean can all be affected by how salty the water is. There are two factors that we consider in our study that may potentially affect the ocean circulation and therefore the heat transport. So one is the bottom heat production. So how much heat is produced in the core. And if you produce a lot of heat, then you expect the bottom part of the ocean to be much warmer than the surface water. Another factor that plays a role here is salinity. So water is just such a bizarre material. Sometimes when it's fresh, it contracts upon warming, but when it's salty enough, the ions dissolved in the water will break the hydrogen bond. And as a result, the water will expand upon warming as normal material will do. But this won't hold for fresh ocean. So in the fresh ocean, you will have hydrogen bound, and that will basically make water contract upon warming, which is a very, very bizarre thing. Imagine a world that water contracts upon warming. That means even if you have bottom heating, you have a stove heating a water tank, it won't drive convective plumes, and instead, warm water will be happily stay at the bottom. This, you know, the opposite of this is ice floats 
on water because it's less dense. And so, yeah, this warm water is not going to rise the way we would expect hot air to rise in freshwater when there's very low salinity. Yes, exactly. So that's one scenario. If we have a very fresh ocean By having a different thermal expansivity, you would expect very different temperature distribution. For example, if the water is not going to convect, then a significant vertical temperature gradient can develop in the ocean. But in the opposite scenario, when the water is convecting, you would expect the top to bottom temperature gradient to be pretty small, like in millikelvin scale. What we see is this temperature range in the ocean by depth that relates to how salty the water is. Yes, and that in turn affects the ocean heat transport meridionally, how ocean transports heat northward or southward. What we really care about, what, what will eventually affect the ice geometry is the meridional ocean heat transport, how ocean will redistribute between the equator and pole, between the two poles, et cetera, et cetera. So this could help explain the thickness of the shell varying across the poles. Yes. We kind of have all our players here, the weird behavior of water, the amount of salt, the asymmetry of the shell, the heating core. So what did you do? You modeled different salinities and tried to see which one would produce the observations that have been seen by these various spacecraft? Yes, that's kind of the general logic we follow in our study. From the observation, we know the ice shell geometry. We can also infer the forcing being put into the ocean by the ice shell. By forcing, I mean the heat flux and the salinity flux. They have these two major factors. So how does ice affect the salinity? We know that in order to sustain the observed ice shell thickness variation, we need to have freezing happening in the regions where the thick ice is located, which is the equatorial regions, right? And melting needs to happen over the polar regions where the ice is thin. When ice forms, it will expel all the salt in it into the ocean. And therefore, it will increase the local salinity. When the opposite is happening, so the ice is pure water. When it's melting, it's just dumped pure water in the ocean, which will in turn reduce the local salinity. So that's one of the four things that you're looking at is the salt and then also the temperature. Yes. Another forcing that we consider is the temperature. So ice thickness variation means that the pressure at the water ice interface will change from place to place. Under thick ice, the pressure will be higher than under a thin ice. And since freezing point is a function of pressure, we expect the water underneath the thick equatorial ice shell to be significantly colder than the water under the thin polar ice shell. And this temperature gradient is so significant that we find could be the dominant driving force. You end up deciding that the middle, (laughs) medium salty, is probably what's most likely happening in the oceans of Enceladus? Yes, yes. The reason we think that is because we've run a series of models to demonstrate that The ocean heat transport and ocean circulation depends on the salinity. When the ocean is very fresh, the temperature is the dominant driving force of the ocean circulation. And because of the negative thermal expansivity of water at low salinity, water tends to sink over the polar regions where the water is warm, warm and dense. And while in the opposite regime, where 
the ocean surface is super high, we expect the ocean to circulate the opposite way, to sink over the equatorial regions because the cold and salty water there is denser than polar water. So there's very much the opposite thing happening in these two scenarios. Exactly. In the very fresh and very salty ocean, we expect the ocean to circulate in the opposite manner. And in somewhere in the middle, the two kind of circulation kind of balance out each other. And we end up having a relatively weak ocean circulation. Discriminating between these two extremes and the middle road, you're looking more at how things are heating up and cooling down. That's more important. Really, the key point is that we have fresh oceans circulating in one way, salty ocean circulating in other way. And these two scenarios both transport a lot of heat. And that amount of heat cannot be lost through the ice shell of, uh, in the equatorial regions. And only one is somewhere in the middle. It seems that uh, the heat budget of the ice shell is more imbalanced. This leaves you with the medium salinity because you're not seeing these extreme levels of circulation. Yes. What does that tell us about habitability of Enceladus? Does it tell us anything about these factors, like how much energy there is for life, how much food there is for life? So according to our calculation, it seems that the bottom heating scenarios where there is significant heat produced in the CK core isn't that consistent with the observed ice geometry, which is not very good news for life living on the seafloor. However, by having an intermediate salinity, we also know that life prefers not too salty and not, not too fresh. So probably that will help in the chemical perspective. So now that you've been through this with Enceladus, where you've taken some measurements, but you also did some modeling, can you look at other watery or icy moons, other planetary bodies, and use this model that you came up with to understand them better? Actually, we just published another paper to understand the ocean heat transport on Europa. And what we find is that in order to have, have a significant ice thickness variation, your moon cannot be too large. So if your moon is super large, like Europa, the gravity is super strong. And therefore, any small forcing from the ice shell will drive a crazily strong circulation in the ocean, transporting a huge amount of heat around. And that heat transport will totally smooth out any ice sickness variation. And that is what likely was happening on Europa. Wow. So this kind of idea can be readily applied to any other icy satellite. And uh, we can use this framework to understand how the ice shell and their ocean couple together, which is a crucial factor if we are to understand the ice geometry and the heat budget of the satellites. Thanks, Wanying. Thanks, Sarah. Wanying Kang is an associate professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at MIT. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. 
Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.